thank you very much to all of you for joining this Conservative Environmental Network event, uh, focusing on forests and deforestation, the importance of the forests uh, that are such an important part of our uh, ecosystems around the world. Uh, great pleasure for me to be chairing this event this afternoon. So I'm Chris Grading, the uh, Member of Parliament for Epsom and Ewell, relatively new member of the CEN network. Um, having escaped government after, and front bench after 17 years, I can now focus on things I'm really passionate about, and this is right up at the top of my list. I think it is hugely important to the future of ecosystems, of our environment, of our climate, uh, and particularly in the conservation of wildlife. Uh, we've seen far too many species brought to the brink of extinction, and deforestation and the lack of habitat is such an important part uh, of what's caused that, and something we really need to start to work to reverse. Um, I'm very pleased today we've got a, a, a high quality panel of speakers. Um, Penny Davies, former uh, a, a DFID specialist, uh, former director of the Ford Foundation's Natural Resources and Climate Change uh, Programme, uh, a real expert in this important field. Um, Thomas Maddox, Senior Technical Advisor at Fauna and Flora International and Natural Capital, Capital Hub Co-Manager at the Cambridge Conservation Initiative, somebody with great experience, previously worked for the World Bank um, and that spent over a decade in the field in Africa working on conservation projects. So he knows these issues very much at first hand. Uh, we're also due to be joined by Johan Eliash, the CEO of the Sporting Group's head and the co-founder of Cool Earth. Not yet with us, I hope he'll be able to join us shortly. Um, but what I hope we can do over the next hour is to focus on some of the challenges that we face if we're going to get the process of deforestation reversed but not just, it's not just about reversing deforestation, it's actually about now really focusing aid programs, international support from public, private, voluntary sectors towards recreating, regenerating habitats uh, and really providing more space for the creatures that are under such pressure, providing more greenery to absorb carbon uh, and to provide a better and cleaner planet. Um, and the, the restoration of habitats and particular forest areas are gonna be such an important part of that. What we know is that deforestation accounts for around 11% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, it's threatened uh, biodiversity for decades, but now is an accelerating part of climate change as well, and something that has to be addressed. And right now isn't being addressed. Uh, right now we've got, as we sit during this pandemic, there is illegal forest clearance in Indonesia taking place to make way for palm oil plantations. We've got uh, an acceleration of deforestation in the Amazon. Uh, and we've got natural disasters linked to deforestation. Vietnam, for example, uh, has seen a significant increase in flooding in recent months, very clearly linked to the cutting down of forests. Um, so this is something that has a very practical consequence uh, around the world, and it can be reversed. I mean, so I have been to a rainforest area in Indonesia uh, which was 20 years ago a, uh, uh, an area of palm oil plantation. Today it is recovering rainforest full of monkeys. Uh, that is what we have to try to achieve in far more places around the world. We have to ensure that the products we eat are from sustainable sources. They're not just uh, on you know, cattle ranching land, creating chopping down the Amazon rainforest. And we've got to create real consumer pressure, in my view, around the world and political pressure to make sure that this process of damage to our environment is reversed. So I hope that kind of gives you a sense of the discussion I hope we're going to have over the next uh, 45, 50 minutes in this uh, uh, CEN forum, uh, sharing ideas, sharing thoughts about how we can take this forward. Uh, and in particular, how uh, in a year where our lives have been massively disrupted by a disease that has quite clearly, in my view, emerged from some of the ways in which we uh, now damage our interaction with the wild wildlife that carries some of these viruses in the first place. Uh, we're paying the consequences for the mismanagement of nature and we're going to have to change that in the years ahead if we're going to prevent things like this from happening again. So that's all I really wanted to say as a starter. I'm going to ask Penny and then Thomas to say some introductory words. I hope Johan will have been able to join us by then. If he's not, I'll I'll slot him in a bit later into this hour when he is able to appear and join us. Uh, but my plan is to, to ask Penny and Thomas to say some introductory words and then to have a, a discussion, a question and answer session at which you can raise the issues that, that you want to, to pick up. 
Um, can I ask those of you who want to ask a question, if you can uh, just say in the, the webinar chat on the right of your screens, you'll see there's an icon at the bottom for you to, uh, to, to tap on to bring up the, the chat pages if you haven't used this before. Just put your name in there, uh, but also just two or three words about the subject area. Don't worry about writing in the whole questions, it'll take up too much space on the page. Just write in the subject area you want to read, reach, want to discuss, because Thomas and Penny will catch a glance of what's coming up and be able to better prepare their thoughts to respond to your questions. Uh, and lastly, just to say a big thank you to Sam and all the team at Conservative Environment, Environment Network for organising today's event. They're going to be watching and listening, and I hope some of today's thoughts will influence what the network does in future and how we encourage government to use the resources at its disposal uh, and the measures that it has available to help this initiative. So, Penny, if I could ask you to start off, um, over to you. Right, thank you very much, Chris. Um, am I clear? Can you hear me? So, Margaret Thatcher spoke to the UN General Assembly 30 years ago, and she said, every year an area of forest equal to the whole surface of the United Kingdom is destroyed. And we're also seeing the destruction on a vast scale, as Chris has said, of tropical forests, which are uniquely able to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere better than temperate forests. Her words hold true today. And not being a patient lady, within a year of saying this, she was able to announce to the Second World Climate Conference that the increased funds she had promised for tropical forestry was supporting partnerships, UK partnerships, in 30 countries, including Uganda, Indonesia, Nepal, Bolivia, Brazil, and so on. She increased UK aid to tropical forests overnight to 1% of our overseas aid budget at that time. And as a comparator, UK contributes 20 to 40% of its aid budget to global health, quite rightly. So very small amount going to tropical forests, but she increased it. Um, and since Thatcher's time, we've dedicated one third of a percent, 0.3% on average of our overseas aid budget to tropical forests. And with the increase in the aid budget, that in effect meant a doubling of our funding over the past 10 years from 10 million pounds to 40 million pounds a year. And to keep those figures again in proportion, that's compared to one to two billion pounds a year on global health and of course, well over a hundred billion pounds to our own NHS. And at the beginning of 2000, we changed the emphasis of our tropical forest partnerships. UK led the international effort to tackle illegal logging. And we started to align better our domestic policies on environment, trade and international development. And we provided technical and trade support to countries that stopped illegal logging of their forests and that reduced the corruption behind illicit trafficking of timber. And of course, those same trafficking routes are those that are used for the illicit illegal trafficking of wildlife. We helped them improve their own forest laws and strengthen law enforcement. And we mobilized our domestic private sector internationally to help in that effort. In particular, the DIY and the timber companies in UK, the UK Timber Trade Federation members. And we had some success, not complete success, in helping countries reduce illegal logging. But the rise in demand for wood by China and the dramatic conversion, bulldozing, clear felling and burning down of tropical forests for commercial agriculture have now diluted the progress that was made at the beginning of the 2000s. So the time for a reset is here. Uh, and the proposed new due diligence measures in the UK Environment Bill to discourage UK companies from sourcing and importing chocolate, soybeans, palm oil, wood from places where forests are being cleared is a welcome step. We need to stop the bad, but we also need to support the good. Valiant initiatives across the world, many of them voluntary, replanting mangroves, restoring wetlands and peatlands, recuperating degraded woodlands and drylands, protecting intact natural forests. 
And recent scientific evidence gathered over the past decade concludes that where indigenous peoples and local communities have clear and secure rights to forests and lands, tropical deforestation is 20 times lower than elsewhere and forest cover of higher quality. A quarter of the world's forest carbon and 80% of terrestrial biodiversity are in lands actively managed by indigenous peoples and remote rural communities who provide critical support that help forest conservation efforts be more effective. And this gives them livelihood benefits. However, many local efforts to protect and restore forests are undermined by unclear rights over forests and incoherent and inconsistent land tenure systems and rules. So we should combine our domestic action to remove deforestation from our imports with greater international support to forest countries in Africa, Asia, Latin America. First to governments to work in collaboration with communities to clarify forest and land tenure, sanction those that clear forests illegally or who harass and kill community leaders for protecting the environment. The Global Witness has pointed out the number of environment leaders, about half of them indigenous or community leaders, that are killed every week has increased over the past years. And second, we should also provide grants that reach more directly community conservation enterprises. So here's hoping that UK at the 26th World Climate Conference in Glasgow next year will be able to equal or raise the level of um, international ambition in its tropical forest partnerships that it showed in 1990 when Thatcher spoke. So thank you. That's my opening shot. Well, thank you, Penny. Very interesting. And I think the point about uh, the need for local ownership of the stewardship of natural resources is a really, really important one, because if those local communities control, own, manage those resources and their livelihoods depend upon them, uh, and that is supported at a government level, then the, the result is bound to be better environmental stewardship. So I absolutely take that point, very important. Um, right, if I could now move on and ask Thomas Maddox, um, if he would say a few words. Uh, Thomas, of course, spent a lot of time working in Africa and sort of seen some of these issues very directly at first hand and the impact on species. So Thomas, over to you. Great, thank you, Chris. Um, so Penny gave you a, an excellent sort of top-down summary of, of the situation there. Um, I, I'm coming at it from a very different perspective, um, maybe a little bit more from a bottom-up perspective. Um, I started out as a wildlife biologist. Um, I had no interest in forest policy or the issues around that at all, really. I started out um, studying cheetahs and then tigers. Um, and I spent um, nearly 20 years working initially in Africa, but actually most of the time I spent working in Asia, uh, spent nearly 10 years in Indonesia. Uh, three of those years were living on one of these oil palm plantations right on the border with the forestry concession. And that's really where my interest it, so my primary interest now, uh, which really came from that time, it was really around the engagement between business and the environment. So it's about uh, how you can mitigate the negative impacts, but also how you can promote the positive impacts. Um, but of course, these interactions are very closely entwined with, with government policy as well. So um, about 10 years ago, I went back to school. I went and got a degree in business, um, and I now work for Fauna and Flora International, uh, who have a very long history of working with business and environmental issues. Um, we've, we're based in Cambridge, um, we've got operations in over 40 countries around the world, um, and a lot of that work is, is focused on forest-based issues. Um, some of it is through individual projects in different countries, uh, Indonesia is one of our large projects, um, but we also have some input into sort of policy issues. So for example, the due diligence law uh, that Penny just mentioned uh, a few moments ago, um, we had input into that consultation process and, uh, and put our views into that. Um, so just a, a couple of, sort of comments on, on forest deforestation and deforestation to begin with. Um, you, you could be forgiven for thinking that forests is just one of many issues that environmentalists are saying we should be worried about. We should be worried about climate, we should be worried about biodiversity, we should be worried about water, we should be worried about natural capital. Um, and, and us environmentalists will, will generally argue, yes, these are all facets of the same issue, you have to worry about all of them. 
Um, but of course, this risks diluting the message a little bit sometimes. The nice thing about forests is that they're an excellent umbrella topic that encompass many of those different environmental concerns. So as has already been mentioned, they're absolutely crucial for carbon. Um, not only are they removing a quarter of the greenhouse gases that uh, uh, we're putting into the atmosphere at the moment, the, the amount of carbon locked up in forests at the moment is actually greater than the amount of known um, fossil fuel reserves we have. Um, forests are also crucial for biodiversity, they're crucial for water, and they're crucial for people, particularly people uh, who are on the poor end of the scale. So over a billion people directly rely on forests. Um, and in Africa, actually, um, over 10% of Africans live above the poverty line, specifically because of the, um, uh, the benefits they derive from forests. So just a couple of reflections on this issue about deforestation and, and afforestation. Um, one of the first things is that I would strongly stress that the, the focus should be on addressing deforestation. From a climate, from a biodiversity, from a society perspective, this really should be the, our priority. Reforestation, better forest management should probably be the next priority, and I would argue afforestation is the end of that list. The next thing I wanted to say was just to underline how serious some of the headline statistics um, are. One of the most important developments around uh, forest management, forest conservation in the last few years is something called the New York Declaration on Forests, which was back in 2014. Um, and this was a declaration that got over 200 countries uh, and companies signing up to commit, halving to commit to halving deforestation by 2020 um, and eradicating it completely by 2030. Uh, this had a big effect at the time. It inspired companies, actually companies I was working with at the time, it inspired companies to sign up for this that I never would have thought would have done. Um, and there was a lot of momentum behind it. Um, and a lot of people have been working on, on trying to eradicate deforestation from their supply chain since that point. However, just recently, it was announced that um, not only have we failed to meet the 2020 target, but unfortunately, um, deforestation rates have actually increased since that time. So just to highlight how difficult these issues are to deal with. The next thing I wanted to highlight was, was really that these headline statistics actually hide a lot of granularity. So the, the global deforestation statistics sound bad, but they include a lot of countries where actually um, deforestation is, it has been reversed, that, that forests are increasing. So when you look at the places where, where deforestation really is happening, Indonesia is one of those places, it is happening so incredibly quickly. Um, so I, I, I can talk about times that we saw entire sort of study areas full of camera traps and full of years of data would disappear literally in days when certain circumstances came together. The, the, the next thing I wanted to highlight was, was that we, we rightfully focus on those key commodities that are driving deforestation. Um, I think there are seven of them uh, listed here. Uh, so palm oil has been mentioned, soy is another one. Um, but at the risk of confusing matters, I did want to point out that there are other commodities that are important as well. One of the main areas I work on is uh, on mining in forests. So last year we did a report for the World Bank that showed that uh, approximately 10% of the world's forests are actually under the influence, under the area of an influence of a, of a large scale mine at the moment. And that this could rise to uh, close to 30% if you include all the mines that are in development or currently mothballed because of commodity prices and so on. So my point is not that mining should, should uh, we should add a more list of commodities to the ones we should be thinking about. Um, it's that we really have to have a, a very integrated approach. These different sectors are all very related uh, uh, to one another. So mining, and in particular the infrastructure that, that is associated with mining, um, is often the, the, the force that drives the initial opening of a forest. Um, that's what attracts people to the area, that's what gives people access. Then you'll see agriculture coming in um, and, and, and conversion to different land uses. So if we're going to address deforestation, we have to recognise all these different factors at play. Um, even if we can't address them all in one go at once. So I think I'll leave it there as just some general notes. I see your hands come on, good news. Yeah, so Thomas, thank you for that. I think your point about, your point about mining as well as the commodities is very well made. Johan, welcome. Um, uh, Johan is our third panellist. He is Chief Executive of the Sports Group Head, more significantly co-founder of and co-chair of Cool Earth. He's a former special representative on these issues to the Prime Minister. And he's carried out reviews into the, uh, the role of international finance mechanisms in helping preserve global forests. Uh, so, Johan, if I can ask you to say a few words and then we'll move on to a panel discussion. Well, thank you, Chris. Yeah, so I've been involved in this area for about uh, the part of 20 years. And um, as uh, 
Thomas uh, pointed out, uh, we haven't made much pro progress. Uh, in fact, in some regions, deforestation has uh, increased over the last few years, and significantly so in the Amazonas, where, uh, uh, and also Indonesia, where uh, rainforest is such an important part of biodiversity and also climate security, um, in addition to food and water security. So just to give you an idea, this is often overlooked, and that is that there is clear correlation between hurricanes and deforestation, because the more trees you deforest, the less uh, moist you have in the rainforested area. And that is the driver for taking the moist that is uh, required for these hurricanes to fall. Uh, and instead, that moist goes into the rainforest uh, instead of helping these wind patterns around the equator um, to form hurricanes. So I said this years ago that uh, uh, the insurance industry would be hugely incentivized uh, to protect rainforests because of uh, obvious implications of, uh, of, these, uh, of deforestation on uh, natural disasters. So, and in addition to that, the obvious things are uh, food and water security because uh, deforestation has huge impact on, on uh, uh, migration, which leads to land grabbing, which leads to conflicts and Darfur is a very good example. If you want to take it even a step further, you can, you can argue that uh, uh, the deforestation in the Congo Basin, which led to higher cereal prices, was a significant contributor to, to the Arab Spring. Uh, yeah, aftermath of the Arab Spring was Syria. We got the refugee crisis, uh, and yeah, everybody blamed the EU for the huge influx of uh, refugees, and whoops, we got Brexit. So cause and effect, deforestation in the Congo Basin, you can actually draw a link to uh, the Brexit vote in 2016. Now, that said, uh, deforestation is, uh, I agree with Thomas here again, that it's more efficient to focus on deforestation than, for instance, reforestation. Reforestation uh, will never have the same impact for a number of reasons. So the other interesting thing is that in terms of cost, it's by far the lowest hanging fruit in this uh, uh, equation. So defore avoided deforestation uh, is maybe around four or five dollars a ton copper. And if you compare that to uh, shall we say the carbon price? It's uh, a no-brainer to to uh, focus on deforestation before many other areas. So I mean, carbon capture is over a hundred dollars a ton, uh, by way of example. Now, so what can we do about this? It it happens to be that we're in a very good position. Number one, uh, we have we are the chair of uh, the COP, COP26, which go ahead a year from now. So we are in a position of influence. Number two, we've got uh, uh, the US on board with uh, President-elect Biden and his recent appointment of John Kerry, who I work with uh, closely for, for decades. And I can tell you firsthand, he's very passionate about uh, uh, the rainforests and avoiding deforestation. So that would be a huge contributor to helping that process uh, forward. And thirdly, I think uh, there is a sense of uh, we need to find a way to finance this. Uh, all the way from initiatives around uh, climate bonds to aligning overseas aid with uh, deforestation projects. 
and in fact, you have very close alignment in terms of objectives here, because uh, avoided deforestation or avoiding deforestation is all about making the standing tree more valuable than the cut down. And that means uh, finding alternative income sources for the people living in the rainforest. Also finding ways to provide health care, finding educational or education uh, opportunities. Uh, so there's a long list of things which are aligned with what we give money for overseas aid. Uh, so if we can combine all that and get more countries to sign up to that concept, uh, and let's say here that we need 100 billion over a 15 to 20 year period to have significant impact on deforestation. Uh, there is plenty of money in overseas, overseas aid budgets that could be partially allocated for these purposes and still uh, achieve the objectives that were set out, set out for overseas aid. So uh, with that in mind, I am hopeful that uh, we can accelerate the process and not just talk about it, uh, but actually get something done. Great, thank you very much, Johan. Well, a lot of food for thought there and a lot from Penny and Thomas as well. Um, so now we're going to move over to our discussion session. Uh, I'm going to use Chair's prerogative and ask the first question myself. Uh, given this year of pandemic, um, what do you as panellists think is the link between deforestation and habitat loss uh, and the transmission of zoonotic diseases from animals to humans? Um, Penny, do you want to kick us off? Thank you, Chris. Yes, yeah, so I'm not a wildlife expert, but uh, um, I talked to Peter Dasnak, who works with the um, Eco Health Alliance in New York. I've just come back from New York, and who was part of the um, group of scientists, including Chinese scientists, that discovered the uh, virus with the ACE2 receptor, in other words, the coronavirus, in a bat cave in China. Um, and so we know that pressure and stress on habitat, environmental degradation, deforestation is linked to Ebola, to Zika, and probably in the future to other. Uh, absolutely with Johan, you know, avoided deforestation is cheap. And if we are going to tackle pandemics in the future, the best way is prevention. And given the costs this pandemic has caused the whole world, um, you know, tackling deforestation would be the cheapest <laughs> preventative uh, approach uh, and a drop in the bucket, really, um, uh, looking forward. And I just also wanted to mention, you know, I think the pandemic in many countries has put stress on food security. Many poor communities are suffering now worse food insecurity. And we know from the science, which we didn't have 20 years back, that tropical deforestation isn't just causing uh, drought in the Amazon. You know, the Amazon is tipping towards a sort of drying and, and parts of it converting back to savanna. But deforestation, tropical deforestation, is affecting rainfall tens of thousands of miles away from where those forests are located. Uh, affecting farmers in sub-Saharan Africa. So the Amazon is affecting the farmers in the Plata Basin and the uh, southern parts of West Africa, the rainforests which are left in Liberia, Ghana, etc., are affecting the, the sub-Saharan and the Sahelian um, and making the droughts worse. So food insecurity and pandemic, pandem pan the pandemic, the coronavirus or those types of virus are intimately linked to the way we are mistreating um, our forests. Johan. You want me to comment on yeah, that? that is, do you want to pick up on that? Yeah, I mean, uh, it's uh, well known, uh, it's been well known for, for a long time that this has impact on, uh, on uh, uh, diseases. Uh, and in fact, CDC in the US under Judy uh, Gerbeling, uh, this is years ago, they were very interested and had lots of uh, interesting projects trying to find 
links and what could be done about it. But then that stopped. And this, with COVID, is obviously something we need to pick up on. And if you think about it, uh, there are probably around about uh, 250,000 deaths a year from climate change issues or events, whatever. Uh, so if you put that in context with COVID and how much money we've spent on COVID, we are prepared to spend 10, 15 times the money on COVID per human life than we are uh, in terms of uh, climate change, if not more, actually. Uh, so I think here we need to see things in, in uh, perspective. So with one or two percent of the population uh, susceptible to, to uh, very serious implications from COVID, uh, compare that to uh, more than 50% of uh, the world's population being displaced or being severely affected through climate change uh, related effects uh, in let's say 100 years from now. Uh, where is the logic in how we treat climate change versus how we've treated uh, COVID. So it's one thing. The second thing is that uh, we're going to need much more research, uh, particularly when it comes to uh, weather and how that is going to be impacted going forward. So one good example is uh, uh, the ocean oscillations. So there's been very little research in terms of the impact of uh, the Pacific Decadal Oscillation, the Atlantic Meridional Oscillation, the Arctic Oscillations, to, to name a few. The same with uh, the tilt of uh, the Earth's axis to the sun, which also has uh, a lot of impact on this. And these are areas which we need to understand better in order to uh, uh, better figure out how we can protect ourselves from Food, food, water, and climate security risks that we face in the future. Okay, Johan, thank you very much. For, uh, uh, I'm going to ask Thomas to say a couple of words, and then I'm going to move on to questions from those listening, starting with Richard Blows. So, uh, Thomas, over to you first, and then we'll come to the questions. Sure. Okay. So there are definitely very clear links with uh, deforestation and the and the COVID outbreak. Um, three quarters of our of our recent um, disease outbreaks in the, in the last few decades have come from wild species populations and they come from the fact that people and, and wildlife are getting closer and closer together because wildlife got far fewer places to go and, and obviously deforestation is a, a large part of that. Um, it, it, I, I have many colleagues that work in this area and they've, they've been saying these messages for a long time and, and they haven't been the messages that have been getting so much attention and, and suddenly the spotlight has turned on this area following COVID. Um, there's been a lot of focus about wet markets. We all know what wet markets are now, and we all know what pangolins are now, um, and and there have been some some good moves to start to address some of those issues. Um, but I think one of the things I wanted to say here is that you can't really have a sort of one disease, one response. Uh, this this was sort of one uh, symptom of a much wider issue, and it was an issue that that people have been working on and, and studying for a long time. Um, there's a whole sort of planetary health movement uh, that brings together medical health uh, experts and environmental health experts um, who've been saying what needs to be done here. There, there's something called the Berlin Principles, a set of principles of what we need to do to recognise the interactions between environment and health. They were drawn up just uh, weeks before the, uh, the COVID uh, crisis hit. So there's a lot of good stuff going on there um, and, and we really need to sort of uh, use this opportunity to, to recognise uh, what's been happening there. The last thing I wanted to say on this is, is really just an echo of uh, Johan's first point, um, uh, linking this, linking the, co co the COVID uh, crisis with the kind of crises we're, we're facing with climate change and biodiversity loss, uh, and wondering really whether we can see this as a sort of practice run. There are many parallels between the two in that they're both issues that we did know well what's happening beforehand. We knew what needed to happen, but a lot of the actions that are needed require spending a lot of money, particularly in terms of climate change and biodiversity loss, maybe before we can feel like we really have to spend it. Um, so we saw what happens as a result of COVID, of not getting properly prepared and not following all the recommendations that came from the uh, sort of wargaming we did around that beforehand. 
um, climate change biodiversity loss is going to have much, much bigger impacts than, than COVID ever has. Um, so hopefully we can learn from those lessons and, and start spending the money and doing what we need to do um, earlier rather than later. Okay, thanks Thomas. Right, I'm now going to start taking questions from the audience. I'm going to try and pick the key themes for discussion today. Uh, I'm going to see now if we can get those asking the questions online uh, to ask their questions. So if I could start with Richard Blows. Uh, Richard, if you are there, please shout. Uh, if not, I'll ask your question for you. Now Richard is indeed here, so. Can you hear me? Yeah. Yes, we can. Oh, okay. Um, just a question. I mean, my experience is from the uh, rainforests of um, Southeast Asia, which I've spent some time in. Um, and um, obviously, palm oil is a huge issue in terms of deforestation there. And talking to a scientist from that area, um, it seems that uh, the good news is um, that trials indicate that actually um, land covered with palm oil can be. Um, relatively easily reforested, um, contrary to perhaps um, popular views. Um, the, the difficulty is that the pressures are so huge, the commercial pressures and the consumer demand, not just from the West, but from China and all the up and coming economies is so great. It's very difficult to offset that. And he, this person was suggesting that um, the answer might well come through um, scientific development of synthetic or cultured alternatives um, to palm oil, uh, which could relatively quickly, if once they become viable, tip the balance back in favour of reforestation. And I just wondered whether the panellists have got any comments on that sort of approach. Okay, thanks Richard. Now what I'm going to do is I'm going to pass each question to one of the panellists for the moment. Uh, any of those not answering the question first want to just wave at me, but so we can try and get through as many questions in the next 20 minutes as possible. So Penny, do you want to pick up on that one? Yeah, so I lived and worked in Indonesia for, well, only, only about two years, but I would just say that the palm oil plantations in Indonesia are very low productivity. There's a huge amount that you could do to improve the productivity per hectare. Uh, and so I've always felt that it's not, you know, palm, palm oil per se that we're against. It is the model of production, of commercial production. Uh, that Indonesia has gone for, gone, gone for huge mega plantations and sort of out, outgrower systems and squeezing communities off their lands where they, you know, I've seen women who had, who were relying on their sort of jungle rubber, which they would tap in the morning and then overnight they become planta oil palm plantation workers. And of course, in the COVID crisis, they've lost their jobs. Uh, but they didn't have such diverse or stable incomes or such good uh, lifestyles. And so this huge, large-scale commercial plantation model is what's bad rather than palm oil per se. Um, it's not just um, vegetable oil, but, but uh, Indonesia's own subsidies to biofuel now, which is driving um, expansion, as well as a corrupt system of concession permitting. Uh, which means that actually quite a lot of the areas that are cleared for, par for oil palm, uh, sometimes our pa oil palm trees are not even um, established on those areas, right? So there's a huge kind of corruption and mafia system which drives this. So I, I yes, fine, you know, we could have technological um, solutions, to other types of vegetable oils. I'm sure that's part of, you know, that that could help a bit, but Basically, it's a governance uh, issue as well as a, a consumption issue, mainly. Thanks, Penny. What, what I was going to do now is actually ask Hilary Scott to pick up, because I think, Hilary, your question feeds very much into what else do we do about this? So if Hilary's there, do you want to ask your question? And I'm going to ask um, uh, Thomas if he'd pick up and uh, talk about this issue as well. Thank you. Can you hear me? Can you hear me? Yes, I'm there. Yes. Um, I was wondering um, what can be done to stop deforestation in a practical way, because um, obviously, uh, well, as, as has just been mentioned, that the drivers are coming from um, China, India and um, 
well, all of us are, are across the world um, and the demand causing it, and how do you change the drivers of their incentives? Okay, thank you, Hilary. Um, uh, just to flag up, I'm going to come to Michael Stock next, but um, Thomas, do you want to pick up on that? Well, so I, that was a very broad question, that, and, if, and if I sort of um, zoom that down to the, the palm oil issue that we were that we were on before, um, the, the couple of things I wanted to mention about that is, is one of the one of the difficult things about palm oil is is that it's not it's not the sort of black and white issue that we often gets portrayed um, uh, in the media and other places, and, and so and. And as an environmentalist, it probably sounds strange that I that I like put some of these views across. But I but I did used to live on a, a plantation for several years, and it was very interesting seeing both sides. I saw tremendous uh, destruction and devastation that, that came from the plantation, but at the same time, um, I saw the uh, how important it was to the local economy. I saw how the, the schools that were provided were the only schools in the area, that the roads that were provided were the only roads that were provided in the area and that there was a lot of bafflement in the local community about why some people in the world were so upset about palm oil. They, they saw it as uh, something that had had such a massive effect on their local economy um, and was bringing in a lot of income um, and was doing a lot of good apart from the fact that it was it was growing in exactly the same place as some of the most important tropical rainforests um, and so that's where the issue comes down to. So it's it's certainly not a black and white issue of a, of a bad of a bad crop. It's 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 an extremely efficient crop that, that unfortunately grows in the same place as some of our most important um, tropical rainforests. Um, the, the, the point about what to do about it, um, I think Penny picked up one of the most important points there around efficiency and the, the really low efficiency in Indonesia particularly is around the smallholders. The smallholders efficiency levels are two or three times lower than some of the large companies. So some of the work if it can be put into uh, making the smallholders much more efficient then they need much, much uh, small areas of land to produce the same amount of uh, palm oil and the other thing is that um, completely boycotting these these products doesn't necessarily work either because you will usually have to, to, to move to an alternative that that may be soy that may be another world that has different issues in different parts of the world um, what I would promote is is putting um, uh, pressure on the the, the people that are producing palm oil in the wrong way and supporting the ones that are producing it in a more sustainable way, so that the ones that have been certified, for example, by the, the ICO certification. So encouraging people to do it the right way and, and not allowing the ones that are doing it the wrong way. Okay, um, uh, Johan, just very quick, is there anything else you want to add to that before I move on to the question of uh, soil and the earth? No, I think that was uh, very well put. Right, okay. Um, so if we could now move on to um, uh, Michael Stock. Thank you, Mr. Grading, for the opportunity to ask a question. And thank you to Penny, to Thomas, and to Johan. Really, really good to hear what you had to say. And we all agree um, that we are not where we ought to be. You remember Martin Wolf said just a couple of years, for all the efforts of the environmentalists, the earth has not noticed. But for me, the light went on only a few weeks ago watching the optimistic Kiss the Ground film, where I learned about carbon sequestration by the soil. And I also learned that we missed a trick at COP21 where the French tried and failed to get action on soil and on forestry, which I understand from the film was vetoed by the US. My question is this, Looking forward to COP26 with President Biden-elect, e um, does that provide the opportunity to correct the failure in the Paris COP21 in COP26, this time with support from the US to get agreed practical action on sustainable re a generative agriculture. Thank you. Yeah, and do you want to add any thoughts on this one? Yeah, so Paris, it was not the cakewalk. It was uh, fraught with the differences and uh, I would say the ambition level had to be scaled down more and more as uh, the COP went on in order to reach an agreement. The problem was, was actually 
uh, a lot to do with Chinese, uh, also the Brazilians and partly the Indians. Um, and so there were many different views. So I think the subject matter you're referring to, which makes a lot of uh, sense, soil degradation, which is very important. It simply, it simply didn't uh, get there in the end because it was just too much to try to agree to. And the same with deforestation, because even though we made some progress, it, Paris was way, way far from where we wanted to get to. Uh, and in fact, our ambition level back in 2009, when I was doing this on, on uh, behalf of the UK, was in fact higher then than um, it, it was for the, the, the Paris COP. Now, things have moved on and uh, uh, people realize that we can't put forestry on the back burner uh, and achieve net zero by 2050. I mean, that's virtually impossible. So reforestation and avoided deforestation, deforestation is an absolute necessity uh, to get there. So, yeah, with common sense, and that applies to all members of the COP, we hopefully will get there for uh, COP26. Thanks, Johan. You mentioned uh, reforestation. I'm going to ask Jackie and then Ed Gemmel to ask two questions side by side and then ask the panel to respond on this issue. Um, uh, so we'll see who appears first. That's Jackie and Ed, 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 Ed Gemmel. Jackie is here, so do you want to ask your question, Jackie? You're muted at the moment, though. Chris, I can see a message saying she's having technical issues. Could you read out her question? Right, I will do. So Jackie is asking, if it's true to say we need access to resources that are mined in forests, then wouldn't a focus on afforestation be a more practical option? Uh, so basically, uh, focus reforestation in areas where there isn't a need for mining. Um, is Ed Gamble on the line and able to ask the question? Otherwise, I will ask it for him. Here he is. Yes, okay, can you hear me? Yes, we can. Okay, great, that's uh, lovely. Um, yeah, proforestation, um, so that's not just stopping deforestation, but actively working with the forests to, to help it get to its full potential is um, the stated main aim in relation to nature of the world scientists warning of a climate emergency. Um, and if people don't quite understand, getting to having mature trees and helping them to become more mature is gonna sequester more carbon and help to sustain biodiversity better than anything else that we could be doing. Um, as that's our aim, and we need to get this massive action going on now and not wait until COP26, what can we be doing now? And I'm really focusing on what can we be doing, CEN, CENMPs, CEN councillors, of which I might be one, or ordinary people. Where are the pressure points where we can work on it now to try and take action on this? Penny, do you want to start on that one? Yeah, I mean, I think um, that uh, I, I don't know, you know, who, who are members of CEN, but uh, relationships and dialogue with individuals and potential champions, whether they're in government or private sector or whatever, uh, in, in, for example, a place like Brazil. I mean, we all hear about Bolsonaro, but there are still a lot of uh, champions you know, on our side in Brazil, a technical level in the more progressive private sector are very worried about what's going on in the Amazon. Uh, so I think, you know, individual dialogue and relationships to try and empower champions is very important. I think also, I mean, you mentioned uh, quality of forest, you know, more mature trees, etc. You know, we want to support regeneration and we want to uh, support um, you know, the right trees in the right place, uh, uh, not just short rotation, uh, monocrop crop uh, plantations, 
um, you know, that won't necessarily help us very much. Um, and I think there are huge opportunities, you know, including commercial opportunities to uh, support uh, that kind of better quality uh, forest cover, which um, individuals are, are interested in. So I think the private sector, you know, can push on this. And in Brazil, with the uh, forest code and where uh, farmers uh, are increasingly worried about drought, which is affecting their soybean production. It's affecting the quality, you know, the, the cattle. The cattle need shade and, and water, etc. That that um, you know they they are themselves wanting to invest in regenerating forests in their pastures along riversides, etc. Uh, to avoid the kind of drops in uh, commercial agricultural uh, crop production that they're starting to see because of the changes in the climate in the Amazon and, of course, in the Cerrado. So, you know, I think a personal approach is important. Um, and I also think encouraging the new FCDO, which I no longer work for, I used to work in DIPID, but, you know, to try and develop programs that are much less sort of bureaucratic in approach, which which can use, which can get grants out to groups on the ground who are already doing good stuff and just need a bit of extra support as well as championship to make sure that you know government or or big bad sort of illegal miners are not going to wipe out the kind of things they're doing i think that's important and then finally i worked for many many years with indigenous peoples across the amazon in in bolivia and peru and um colombia brazil etc and you know they really are have a very, very in place, it's very, very long-standing, fine-grained understanding, uh, long-standing relationship with their forests and sophisticated agroforests and Sweden systems, which hold a huge amount of carbon. And I think, you know, they're under threat. Uh, COVID has put them under threat. Uh, countries are worried now about recovery from COVID. And this kind of effort that you're mentioning is absolutely green recovery. It will be good recovery from COVID. That's also another narrative that I think needs to be pushed out uh, to kind of get people and policymakers and, uh, to understand. And it would be then helpful for indigenous peoples as well, uh, who are trying to protect their ways of life and their forests and, and their wildlife. Right, thank you, Penny. We've got a little under 10 minutes left of our allotted time. What I'm planning to do is take the next three questions, um, if we can do it snappily, Ian Courts first, Jeremy Colson second, and Jeanette Clifford third. Uh, and then I'm going to finish off by asking our three panellists to give us the, the top thing that they would like to happen in 2021 to get this agenda onto the next level. Um, so uh, if I can start with uh, Ian Courts. Okay. Am I on okay? Yeah. Well, yes. Great, okay. Um, in, in course, I'm leader of Solihull Council. I also have portfolio responsibility in the Combined Authority for Environment Energy and HS2. That's uh, Andy Street's um, uh, team, uh, for want of a better word. Um, in, in Solihull, we've adopted the uh, basic premise that um, climate change is about reducing carbon emissions, uh, biodiversity, and reducing uh, pollution. The point being that Everybody think, you know, talks about carbon emissions, but biodiversity and these other are, are really vitally important. Uh, the next five years is going to be critical in terms of everything we do. I mean, the work we've done with hashtag uh, 2041 makes that clear. Um, and my question is about offsetting, because it's often frowned upon, um, you know, Fred is oh, offsetting could do it. But in actual fact, cities, for instance, that don't have places to, to plant trees, um, I just wonder whether we should be encouraging much uh, greater collaboration with, um, you know, overseas countries or even those in our country where there is areas for uh, forestation and we should put this higher up on the agenda. Okay, um, thank you. Johan, can I get you to answer this one? I think um, uh, obviously the Prime Minister himself is very passionate about reforestation and has announced ambitious schemes to, to do as much reforestation as possible, which will uh, be a significant part of uh, our net zero by 2050 policy. So I, I think 
we take this uh, very seriously and uh, in fact more serious than uh, most other countries. Okay, um, uh, next, Jeremy Colson, please. Yes, hello, can you hear me? Yes. Thank you. Um, yeah, so thank you CEN for uh, convening this uh, Zoominar, I think we could call it. And thank you to Chris Grayling and the panelists. My question relates to the relationship between energy production and deforestation. So it's um, in order to reduce deforestation, should we stop subsidizing the burning of wood chips, wood pellets, and other types of biomass currently being used to make electricity in the UK? Or is the practice of burning biomass the only way we can reach carbon zero by 2050? Thomas, I'll ask you to pick up this one if that's okay. Um, it's obviously an issue that's broader than just the UK, though a UK focus in the question. Uh, thank you, Chris. That's um, that, it's the one issue of thought that's come up that I, I know very little about, unfortunately. Um, so, so the the, the very brief things I know about the, the role of bioenergy is, is I know that it's far more complicated than it looks on the surface. Um, I know that um, often that burning uh, crops as uh, as a uh, as a climate approach often has completely reverse um, impact as intended. Um, I know that complete life cycle analysis of these issues is really key um, and I know that, that often it's the uh, it's the, the crops we grow specifically for biofuels are some of the worst ones um, but I'm I, I'm not going to claim any deeper knowledge in that and if anyone else would like to pick that up I'd be happy to do. Okay Penny do you want to just say something on this I saw you raise your hand. Yeah, I mean, I just, I mean, uh, Duncan Brack at Chatham House has done an interesting analysis of, you know, some of the sort of uh, projects and the, and, the, and proposed projects of DAX in the UK. Uh, and his uh, analysis, you know, shows that it's not really as, as, as climate smart or carbon friendly uh, as one might envisage. And certainly, I mean, if you're, you know, if you're trashing, as in the southern part of North America, trashing old growth forests to turn it into wood pellets and then, or in Indonesia, where a lot of natural primary forest is being cleared to then turn into short rotation plantations, you know, that's not really where we want to go. So, you know, quality of forests. I'm not against wood pellets per se, but it's what, <laughs> where you're sourcing your wood pellets from. Um, you know, China is starting to convert some of its coal plants into wood pellets, uh, and there is now increasing evidence, EIA and others, Environment Investigation Agency, etc., are starting to track, you know, so they seem to be sourcing their wood pellets from plantations in Vietnam, but Vietnam is a sort of timber laundering centre, and some of that wood pellet is probably coming from natural forests in Indonesia, for example, and then being from... Uh, Vietnam into China. So this is very, very complicated. Uh, and I'm very worried. Some of the modeling, uh, which shows where we, you know, we need to replant with lots of trees, areas the size of you know, twice the size of India uh, across the world, if we're to get down to zero net by 2050. I mean, so, some of that modeling, I think, is probably unrealistic. Uh, and certainly we've been having discussion by some of where I work have been having discussion with some of the modelers about that. So I do share your concern, but I agree with Thomas. It's, you know, complicated. I'm not an expert, but I, I refer you to that Chatham House um, study. Okay. Last question uh, from Jeanette Clifford, please. Thank you. Um, the, the government's bilateral agreement and multi-million pound support for a, a rainforest protection in Colombia appears to, to me to be a a really successful model. Are, are such government-to-government -government relationships the real hope of change? And if so, is there any real role for the consumer? Well, thank you. I think that's a really important point. And I say um, my personal view is that the consumer has got to be a fundamental part of this. Uh, but what I'll do is I'll ask each of our panelists to give a quick snappy response to that. Then I'll ask them to give their number one priority for next year. And then I'm afraid we'll run out of time. So uh, we're going in reverse order uh, for the response to Government or consumer, Johan? Well, uh, interestingly, in Colombia, they had low degree of forestation when you had uh, uh, all these well, coke wars and also the frack. Uh, and 
coke production has gone down and the they settled with the frack and uh, therefore now there's pressure on deforestation. Uh, so they swap one problem for another one. And it's a government that takes this seriously. They're doing great. And of course, this is a great way for us to engage with other countries and really get their appreciation. And here is where the point I made earlier about the overseas aid, uh, where we also get something out of uh, our generosity uh, by getting loyal in the future. Thank you, Thomas. Um, if the question was government or consumer, I'd say the, the answer is government. Um, I think it, it's unfair to put the burden on the consumer. And I think engaging with billions of consumers is an extremely hard thing to do. Um, I, I think the solution of those two has to come down to government. Penny. I would say, you know, there's, there's no silver bullet and you need multiple approaches. <laughs> um, and that it is important to send a trade, or if you like, a market signal of various types um, and it may not be engaging with consumers it may be engaging with sort of flagship private sector companies and then Tesco can make an announcement and that sends a sort of signal certainly Bolsonaro was impacted by the letter that uh, in financial investors as well as supermarkets sent him about the Amazon so I think you need to do both so uh, and just on Colombia yes a great success I mean and then the UK money has leveraged in more you know colombian national budget and also probably funding from the global green climate fund but the main or the growing problem so it was in the amazon in the colombian amazon before covid hit um uh, last uh, earlier in the year and mega narco gold mining across the border peru um and, and the, the border of the, Am of the amazonian part of, of Colombia and Peru. It's, it's terrible and it's linked to money laundering and all kinds of things and rightly the Colombian government is very concerned about that. So you know you need to use all um, all the arrows that we have to our bow or, or, or all the gunpowder that we, we have to hand. Uh, I, I'll just add on that. I do think the consumer is very important. I just put forward a 10-minute rule bill to try and nudge the government to introduce a kite marks scheme for food products to see demonstrate that it came from a sustainable source or not. So ultimately, I think you know, people will not buy a product that's got palm oil in it that involves chopping down a rainforest if they know that's the case. But we've got to give them that information. That's what we do to give them the power to change things. Right, so I'm afraid we've come to pretty much the end. I say I'm going to ask each of our panelists just to give us their number one priority, the thing they most want to see happen in terms of an action point in 2021, big year for the UK with COP and for the world on these issues. Thomas, do you want to start us off? Sure, biggest thing I'd like to see happen is a green stimulus package uh, to be greener. I think we're in the sort of greenness measure. We're about number five in the world at the moment. I'd like to see us to be number one. Okay, Johan. I'd like to see a $100 billion fund being created over a 20-year period with a 10-year runoff to 2050 dedicated to uh, deforestation and reforestation projects. Uh, and there is uh, uh, a lot of support for that from even countries like Saudi Arabia. Was we need to do. We need to step up and uh, and do something. And those of us who have the money should do it. And it could actually be a very good investment because, uh, given the likely price of carbon credits, whatever mechanism we'll have, uh, these initiatives will become incredibly valuable and probably self-funding because uh, countries will say, "Hey, why do we give this away to a fund?" Uh, when we can do this ourselves and make the money. But we need a funding mechanism and we also need a framework around which carbon credits can be monetized so that uh, funding will be deployed. And lastly, Penny. I hope that despite the cut to UK aid budget, um, 
the funding to tropical forestry will be maintained and increased as part of international climate finance. Uh, and certainly, I mean, if Johan's <laughs> suggestion can be made flesh, then, you know, some of that funding should go to help grease the wheels to um, kickstart that kind of... Well, I'll definitely be pushing for the point about that part of the budget to be sustained. But um, so thank you very much. Thank you to everybody who has attended uh, 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 this uh, Zoominar. Uh, I hope you've all found this discussion very helpful and informative uh, and will help those of us who are policymakers shape our thoughts as we press governments both here and internationally to do more in this area. Uh, but to Penny, Thomas and Johan, normally I'd be calling for a round of applause at this moment in time. It's slightly more difficult on Zoom. But I assume you are receiving one. Thank you all three very much for joining us uh, and for some very helpful and interesting contributions. Thank you to the team at SEN headquarters for organising this. Uh, and I look forward to returning to this issue with you all in the not too distant future. Thank you very much. <laughs>